I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is News Beat. Hey, everybody. This is Manny Faces, producer and host of News Beat, where we weaponize journalism and independent hip-hop to shine a light on underreported social justice issues. Now, with the showdown between President Donald Trump and Democratic challenger former Vice President Joe Biden fast approaching, an unprecedented number of Americans have already cast their ballots via early voting, signaling a potentially historic turnout when the final votes are tallied November 3rd, or shortly thereafter. This is despite more and more barriers preventing people from exercising this fundamental democratic right, especially affecting, you guessed it, low-income, minority communities, and the elderly. Now, as you'll learn from this episode, the floodgates for such restrictions were kicked open in 2013 following the landmark Supreme Court decision Shelby County v. Holder, which kneecapped safeguards designed to prevent voter discrimination in jurisdictions with records of historical abuse. The ruling essentially gutted what was called the, quote, pre-clearance system of the Voting Rights Act, igniting a barrage of anti-voter measures ranging from harsh voter ID laws to the shuttering of thousands of polling stations. I mean, there are currently a whopping 35 states with laws in force requesting or requiring voters to show some form of identification at the polls. So breaking down all of this for us and underscoring exactly what's at stake for this upcoming election and for those in the future is social justice and civil rights attorney Duel Ross, senior counsel at the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and Sean Morales-Doyle, deputy director in the Democracy Program at the nonprofit Brennan Center for Justice, where he focuses on voting rights and elections. Now, after you listen, please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out usnewsbeat.com for an accompanying article for this drop, as well as all of our full episodes featuring incredible guests and original verses from an ever-growing roster of independent hip-hop artists. And I gotta say, we also urge you to go out and vote to make sure your voice is heard in this extraordinarily important election. In the meantime, this is Voter Suppression in the era of a weakened Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act is often called the crown jewel of the civil rights movement. It was passed in 1965 in response to overwhelming racial discrimination, primarily against African-Americans, but also against Asian-Americans, Latinx Americans, Native Americans. Uh, And what the Voting Rights Act did in 1965 is it outlawed a number of discriminatory devices that were used across the country, particularly literacy tests. And it also created a requirement that is called Section 5 preclearance. And what Section 5 required of the Voting Rights Act was that any time a state or a county that was covered by the Voting Rights Act sought to change its election procedures, anything from as small as moving a polling place to as big as passing a new voter registration or voter redistricting, congressional redistricting uh, rule, had to be pre-cleared by the United States Department of Justice or three federal judges in Washington, D.C. And what I mean by pre-clearance is that either the court or the Department of Justice had to decide that the law did not have a discriminatory effect or a discriminatory purpose. That provision was in effect from 1965 until 2013. The states and places that were covered by it were primarily in the South, the old Confederacy, Texas, through 
Virginia, but also included parts of New York City, parts of California, parts of Michigan, other states. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 1296, Shelby County versus Holder. The Supreme Court in 2013, unfortunately, decided in a 5-4 very split decision that the Voting Rights Act Section 5 preclearance provisions were not unconstitutional, but that the rule under which certain jurisdictions were covered and other jurisdictions were not was unconstitutional because it was based on data from the 1960s and 1970s about voter registration and turnout. It's considered one of the most important pieces of civil rights legislation ever passed. But by five to four, the U.S. Supreme Court today took the teeth out of a law enacted nearly 50 years ago. President Lyndon Johnson signed the landmark law in 1965, and ever since, the Voting Rights Act has policed voting discrimination. But today's decision effectively puts it on hold. Chief Justice John Roberts, writing for the five-member majority, said the law originally distinguished between states that had used barriers to minority voting and had low voter turnout and those that had not. But he wrote, today the nation is no longer divided along those lines, yet the Voting Rights Act continues to treat it as if it were. Essentially, what that meant was that certain jurisdictions with a history of racial discrimination couldn't make any changes to elections, practices, policies, laws, without getting them pre-cleared by the federal government, by the Department of Justice. That was the most effective remedy for civil rights violations that our nation has ever seen. The problem with stopping discriminatory voting practices and other discriminatory practices is in part being able to identify them as they're going on the books and being put into effect and then responding to them. But preclearance essentially nipped a lot of problems in the bud. It stopped states from and, and localities from doing things in order to make sure that they weren't having the discriminatory effect that the Voting Rights Act was meant to stop. And if the jurisdiction couldn't show that they weren't going to have the discriminatory effect, then the federal government would freeze the policy and not allow it to go into effect. It also stopped policies from even being proposed or put on the books in the first place. And what I mean by that is, with the preclearance in effect, jurisdictions that were covered knew that if they did propose something that had discriminatory effects, it would be blocked. And so they wouldn't even waste their time trying to do these things. Justice Ginsburg correctly said in her dissent that throwing out the Voting Rights Act preclearance regime because it was working, because uh, we had seen increases in voter registration and turnout was like throwing out your umbrella when it's raining. The worst case, I think, was the Voting Rights Act case. That passed Congress overwhelmingly. I think it was unanimous in the Senate and 330 some odd votes in, in the House. If anyone knows about the voting rights, how it affects the system. I think the elected representatives have, have an appreciation of that, that the unelected judges don't have. And what we've seen in response in the last seven years is that because the Voting Rights Act no longer exists, states like Alabama, Louisiana, Texas, Virginia have passed a series of voting rights suppression laws that infringe primarily on the rights of African-Americans, but again, other people of color as well. 
Today's decision apparently clears the way for several high-profile laws to take effect, including stricter voter ID requirements in Alabama, Mississippi, and Texas that drew objections from civil rights groups. Immediately the same day that the Shelby County decision was decided in June of 2013, the Texas Attorney General and Secretary of State announced that they would go forward with enforcing this law that had been found to be racially discriminatory. Voting laws are getting stricter in Texas. The Supreme Court ruled states do not have to get federal permission before changing voting laws. The big question is what happens now? In Texas, the voter ID law requires voters to present a valid picture ID before casting ballots in state and local elections. The Texas law was passed in 2011, but was put on hold after a court found it discriminated against minorities. What the D.C. court found in Texas is that it impacts Latino and Black communities far more than the Anglo communities. It found that it, the most aggrieved were not only the poor, but the elderly and the handicapped. LDF and others brought litigation. We were ultimately successful, but the difference between the preclearance litigation in which for two years the law was blocked because the onus was on the jurisdiction again to sort of get over the hump of proving that it was non-discriminatory. Instead, from 2013 until 2016, that entire three-year period, even though numerous courts and the DOJ had found that the law was discriminatory, it was in effect. And what we found through litigation is that up to 600,000 registered voters in Texas, primarily African-Americans and Latinos, were effectively disenfranchised by this law and that up to a million voters who were eligible to vote, whether registered or not, were also impacted by this law. Do you believe that elections are essentially rigged? What I mean by rigged is this. We have a right to vote in the United States that is afforded to eligible American citizens. But we have seen over the last 20 years a constriction on who has the right to use that right. We have seen it through voter ID laws. You can't get on the rolls, and if you get on the rolls, you can't stay. You may not be able to cast your ballot because they close your precinct or they change the rules. That's rigging the game. That's rigging the game. That's rigging when you think about what we saw uh, in the Kentucky primaries, where the county which Louisville is in only had one polling place, just one, down from 200. We see the long lines in Georgia when the rain is coming down and people are forced to stand in line for hours and hours. That, that same old playbook that has been used time and again, time and again continues, today. continues today. Be, be, be prepared to go to a di different polling place for the primaries next month. Richland County leaders say they'll be closing dozens of the county's polling the locations to voters in June. Long wait times plagued polling places in Texas throughout Super Tuesday, especially in, dist especially in districts with high numbers of black, black and Latinx, Latinx voters and college students. Many voters reported waiting in line for more than three hours, three hours to cast a ballot. At least 750 Texas polling sites have been shuttered since 2013. Now to the primary day chaos. Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of voters waiting in hours-long lines in the heat some in the rain to cast their ballots. Most, of, most the, of the most of the problems in the metro, specifically in areas with high black populations. Alabama in 1965 is where the Selma to Montgomery march took place. It's where uh, John Lewis was beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and that beating of John Lewis and other protesters is what really galvanized Congress and the president to pass the Voting Rights Act of 1965. We're marching today to dramatize to the nation, dramatize to the world, that hundreds and thousands of Negro citizens of Alabama, but particularly here in the Blackfield area, denied the right to vote. 
would be detrimental to your safety to continue this march, and I'm saying that this is an unlawful assembly. You have to disperse. You are ordered to disperse, go home, or go to your church. This march will not continue. I was the first person to be hit. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. I thought I saw death. I thought I was going to down that bridge. I thought it was my last nonviolent protest. And all these many years later, I don't recall how I made it back across that bridge to the church. So Alabama is the home of the Voting Rights Act. And for every period from 1965 until 2013, Alabama was covered by Section 5 preclearance. In 2011, Alabama passed a photo ID requirement. That photo ID requirement was very restrictive. Republicans added these photo ID rules in 2011. And while there can be neutral reasons for voter ID, Republicans in Alabama were caught making other arguments like suppressing the black vote. One legislator saying that black voters were, quote, illiterates and aborigines or take Senator Dixon, who voiced a concern that the right to vote without showing ID was allegedly, quote, beneficial to the black power structure. One of the most, I think, telling aspects of the photo ID requirement is that it actually requires you to submit a copy of your photo ID with your absentee ballot, your mail-in ballot. So if you actually think about that for longer than 10 seconds, you realize that mailing in a copy of your photo ID does not prevent voter fraud. It doesn't mean anything. Someone can mail in a copy of a photo ID with my picture on it, but no one's actually going to compare my face to the picture because I've mailed it in. And so it really doesn't make any sense except as a voter suppression measure. In fact, the legislators who sponsored the bill were caught on tape in 2010 plotting to suppress the black vote. They had called black voters aborigines and illiterates in talking about wanting to depress black voter turnout in 2010. And another legislator who has supported this voter ID bill for 15 years had openly said that the purpose of the bill was to undermine the state's black power structure and to make it more difficult for black people in particular to vote. So in 2011, this photo ID bill was passed and the state did something that was quite curious. They did not submit a law for preclearance at all. They essentially sat on the bill from 2011 until 2013. But the same day that the Shelby County decision came out, they said they were going to go ahead with enforcing the photo ID requirement. We've seen really a wave of laws across the country since the Shelby County decision. Changes in laws, and I should also say, it's not always just changes in laws. The preclearance provision also prevented changes that weren't a law passed by a legislature, but, you know, closing of polling places, changing the way that voters are moved from the rolls um, because they've moved. All kinds of changes in the way that elections work were covered by Section 5 preclearance. And we saw a proliferation of restrictive policies and practices across the country. And we saw them happening more frequently in places that had formerly been covered by the preclearance provisions. North Carolina is another example of a state that in the wake of Shelby County passed some incredibly restrictive 
laws, including uh, basically a set of laws that rolled back voter-friendly policies and put in anti-voter policies that the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals Federal Court said targeted black voters with surgical precision. It's a crime that we stand here 27 days after the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Voting Rights Act, and we have less voting rights today. That fiery denunciation by Reverend William Barber, head of North Carolina's NAACP, may seem out of a different time and place. Glory! Glory! But Barber believes new laws that alter how, where, and when citizens can vote are designed to disenfranchise as many black voters as possible. All of these attacks on voting rights started right after President Obama won in states, and it changed the dynamic. People came together who hadn't been coming together in the South. We noted that this is an attempt to roll us backwards. Uh, The Brennan Center conducted a study of voter purges. That is, states have a duty under federal law to conduct voterless maintenance, to make sure that the voter rolls are up to date. So if someone moves out of state, they're removed from the rolls in the state they left. Or if they die, they're removed from the rolls and that sort of thing. Voterless maintenance is something that states have to do and that they should do responsibly in order to maintain accurate voter rolls. Georgia's been accused before of disenfranchising voters and a new study from Greg Palast, a reporter who's been investigating the state's voter purges since 2013, says his latest investigation concludes that the state was wrong late last year to purge another batch of voters, nearly 200,000 inactive voters from the rolls, after the state was unable to verify their current addresses. More than 200,000 voters may be purged from the Wisconsin voter registration rolls just months before the presidential primary. Supreme Court has ruled in favor of an Ohio policy to remove thousands of registered voters from its rolls if they haven't responded to a notice from state officials. We've seen these types of aggressive and illegal voter purges on the rise in a lot of places around the country, but we actually studied the rates of voter purges across the country and demonstrated that in jurisdictions that were previously covered by preclearance, we saw an even larger increase in voter purges than we did in other parts of the country since 2013. Another big issue that we've seen in the South and in other places is closes to polling places. There have been a series of reports showing that in places like Georgia, there have been a large number of polling place closures in the last several years, primarily often in largely African-American communities. And so you have instances where a county maybe traditionally had five polling places, two of them were in the black neighborhood, and in the last seven years have closed all but two polling places and have required some voters to travel, you know, 20, 30 miles in order to get to the nearest location to vote. And so for people who are who are rural, African-Americans and other people of color who are more likely to be poor, more likely to lack access to the vehicles, that is really a detriment to their ability to vote. All types of conniving methods are still being used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters. The denial of this sacred right is a tragic betrayal of the highest mandates of our democratic tradition. So our most urgent request to the President of the United States 
and every member of Congress is to give us the right to vote. Give us the right to vote. Give us the ballot. And we will no longer have to worry the federal government about our basic rights. Give us the right to vote. Give us the ballot. And we will no longer plead to the federal government for passage of an anti-lynching law. We will, by the power of our vote, write the law on the statute books of the South and bring an end to the dastardly acts of the hooded perpetrators of violence. Give us the ballot and we will transform the salient misdeeds of bloodthirsty mobs into the calculated good deeds of orderly citizens. Give us the ballot and we will fill our legislative halls with men of goodwill and send to the sacred halls of Congress men who will not sign a Southern Manifesto because of their devotion to the Manifesto of Justice. Give us the ballot and we will place judges on the benches of the South who will do justly and love mercy. And we will place at the head of the Southern states governors who have felt not only the tang of the human, but the glow of the divine. Give us the ballot. Give us the ballot. Give us the right to vote. Give us the right to vote. One way to think about it is that it's a centuries-long battle to get to the point of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, Obviously, there's centuries of that fight that are really a fight against slavery and just a fight to be acknowledged as human um, and to be acknowledged as a, a citizen. But even after that happens, during Reconstruction, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, the 14th Amendment provides for equal protection of the laws, and the 15th Amendment makes racial discrimination in voting illegal. Even after that, it's another hundred years of fighting before the Voting Rights Act actually finally helps make those promises of the 14th and 15th Amendments a reality for so many people in this country. And when I say a fight, I mean people died. People sacrificed their lives to give their fellow citizens the opportunity to vote. It's hard to overstate what was required to get to where we are. It it, it made me want to just cry after people gave a little blood, after some people were beaten, shot, and murdered, trying to help people become registered voters. I can never forget the three civil rights workers that were murdered in the state of Mississippi on the night of June 21st, 1964. Other people shot down in cold blood. The march from Selma to Montgomery, where 17 of us were seriously injured. And we passed the Voting Rights Act, we renewed the act, we extended the act, and then the state of Florida, the state of Georgia, Alabama, and other states throughout the nation come along with tactics to make it hard, to make it difficult for people to participate. We shouldn't be making it easy and simple 
and open up the political process and let all of the people come in. Thinking about the history of this country, you've really seen fits and starts to the expansion and the erosion of the right to vote. Obviously, in 1965, people fought and died, many of them, or were beaten or had to go through extraordinary hardship just to register to vote, just to give people the opportunity to vote. Every time the Voting Rights Act of 1965 is used or evoked, it's really literally the blood of Americans who fought and died for that right. And so the, the idea that now, 50 years later, where we're still seeing the score of very kinds of discriminatory measures that the Voting Rights Act was meant to combat, and yet courts not always recognizing that these laws are racially discriminatory, really ripping the heart out of the Voting Rights Act in 2013 with the Shelby County decision and the threat of this Arizona decision potentially uh, shredding what little is left of the Voting Rights Act could do immeasurable damage to the voting rights of people of color in this country, could do immeasurable damage to the fundamental principles of our democracy. I mean, frankly, America didn't have much of a democracy before the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And so the idea of getting rid of it or further weakening its protections, I think only undermines further the very nature of American democracy. In some ways, when we start talking about the, all these policies and about the Voting Rights Act and everything else, it can be a very depressing conversation. Um, there are a lot of places in the country, as I said, that where we've seen this proliferation of anti-voter laws. What's been really encouraging is that in the last few years, we've seen a countervailing trend in a lot of parts of the country of states passing pro-voter laws, putting policies in the books that not only knock down barriers to voting, but encourage more people to get registered in voting. And that includes getting rid of felony disenfranchisement laws in a lot of places around the country. We've seen progress on that. It also includes passing policies like automatic voter registration, which essentially means that when I go to you know, the DMV or other state agencies, they're going to register me to vote automatically unless I say, no, please don't. And then that little change can lead to a lot more people getting registered and voting and get rid of that last barrier to voting for so many people, which is just having an up-to-date registration. Policies like election day registration, where if something goes wrong, I got knocked off the rolls, I moved and forgot to update my registration, I didn't realize that there was a 29-day registration deadline, whatever it might be, I was in jail uh, at the time when uh, the voter registration deadline passed, and now I've been released, not with a conviction, just was you know arrested at the time. All those kinds of things that get in the way of someone voting on election day or during early voting, if you have election day registration, so many of these barriers can fall away because it means that when I show up to vote and something's wrong with my registration, I can register right there, cast my ballot, and it will count. So we really push for those kinds of policies in order to not just not be actively stopping people from voting, but doing what we can to make it as easy as possible for people to cast their ballots. But, but the great weight of evidence, I think that it's fair to look at, on some level you have to look piece by piece, state by state. But you also have to step back and look at the great mosaic. This statute is in part about our march through history to keep promises that our Constitution says for too long were unmet. And this court and Congress have both taken these promises seriously in light of the substantial evidence that was adduced by Congress. It is reasonable for Congress to make the decision that we need to stay the course so that we can turn the corner. To be fair, this 
statute cannot go on forever. But our experience teaches that six amendments to the Constitution have had to be passed to ensure safeguards for the right to vote. And there are many federal laws. They protect uniform voters. Some protect uh, eligible voters who have not had the opportunity yet to register. But together, these protections are important because our right to vote is what the United States Constitution is about. 